Hello, everybody. It is Friday night. Um, this is Shane, and we're going largely off script here. Just thought I'd come on and give a, a couple little thoughts. If anybody's listening to this for the first time, this is a sort of interlude on to what this podcast normally is, which is a deep dive onto a specific Ryder Cup. So episode one, we looked at 2014. Episode two, it's 1983. Then we did 1985. But now, because I'm in Whistling Straits, covering it for Golf Digest and for the Ryder Cup book I'm writing, I figured we're here. Let's give our thoughts on it. And um, a couple days ago, I did a little podcast about, essentially, based on what we know and what we've studied about the history of the Ryder Cup, can we predict with what little information we have what's going to happen in Whistling Straits? And so we did that, and we're going to talk about that tonight. This is number two. We have our first results in the book. The U.S. had a very good day. It was six to two at the end of the day. And it's starting to look very, very tough for Europe. Anything can happen, and it's possible that they come back tomorrow. I'm starting to think personally that this is already over, but we'll see about that. But anyhow, um, the other thing I always say now is I've got a book about the Ryder Cup coming out. So if you like these podcasts and you like Ryder Cup content, the book is called The Cup They Couldn't Lose. At least it's called that for now. That's the working title. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, pretty much wherever you find books. And would certainly appreciate a pre-order if you feel so inclined. All right. So when we did the first Whistling Straits podcast a couple days ago, we looked at, can we predict this? Can we predict this thing and see what's going on? I'll give you the quick summary of my take, which is that the last four Ryder Cups uh, have been, well, let's go back even further. Let's go back to 2006. Ever since 2006, the home team has taken the lead into Sunday singles. And the most narrow lead of those was 9-7. to seven. Very often it turns out to be 10-6. to six. Of course, we've seen the last three Ryder Cups have been blowouts. Medina is the strange exception where the U.S. led 10-6 to six and ended up blowing it on Sunday. Uh, but I think if we look at that as an historical anomaly, which it is, even though you have, you know, comebacks in the past, but let's look at the modern age. That is an anomaly for somebody to lose a home team, especially to lose that bat at home uh, in Sunday singles. So if we ignore that, generally speaking, we're looking at uh, the home team having a massive advantage in the Ryder Cup year after year. We saw it in Paris. We saw it in Glen Eagles for the Europeans, saw it in Hazeltine for the Americans, saw it in Valhalla for the Americans. Um and so I, based on that, I said, then, okay, let's look for red flags. Let's look at things that would be really bad for the Americans and would override this home, home field advantage, home course advantage, whatever you want to call it, uh, and essentially give Europe the, uh, the advantage back or at least square things up. Well, I didn't find any. I thought Steve Stricker was an incredibly prepared captain. It was clear he had a plan. It was clear he had let his players know about the plan. These are all important things. I, I think sometimes this may be a little glib, but basically sometimes if a, a captain has a concrete and detailed plan, that's sort of like 80% of the step of the way there. It almost doesn't matter what the plan is. If, if they know it and the players know it and they communicate it and they follow it, it's good to have that kind of structure. You know, we talked about Azinger's plan in 08 with his pod system and uh, mimicking the Navy SEALs. It's very different from what McGinley did in 2014, but they were both very effective go up against captains without a plan and absolutely decimate them. So I thought Stricker had a plan. We didn't know exactly what it was, but from his practice pairings, it was clear that it was almost clear who was going to play each other. You could safely guess who uh, was going to play which format, 
And in fact, you know, I guessed the lineups. Um, I did my best to guess the lineups on Thursday night or Thursday afternoon before they were released. I nailed all four U.S. pairs. I almost had the right order. I flipped. I thought maybe he would go Shoffley and Cantlay first and Spieth Thomas last. Otherwise, had it perfect. And then I did the European picks, and it was completely embarrassing. And part of the reason I didn't know is because Padraig Harrington didn't have these guys practicing together. Uh, more than one time, the people he put in the pairs. And I asked him about that, and he gave this interesting answer uh, about how every captain brings something unique to the Ryder Cup uh, within this European template. And one of the things he brought was that they were not going to spoil the mystery by <laughs> by playing uh, together too often because he was afraid they'd get sick of each other. And so it was good to have a little intrigue and surprise uh, come Friday. And you might hear that and go, well, that's interesting. That's new. And you might also hear that and go, that's doesn't seem wise. It seems like if you, you know, want people to get to know each other, there's better situations for it, such as a practice round, than in the cauldron of Friday morning at a Ryder Cup, particularly when you might be dealing with a handful of rookies like he had. So that struck me as interesting, that he maybe wasn't as prepared as Stricker and Again, you can overanalyze some of this stuff, and, and it doesn't mean Harrington was a bad captain or anything like that, but he certainly wasn't going to be more prepared than Stricker. If anything, they were going to be equally prepared. I think Stricker was more prepared, but it wasn't going to be a red flag for America. Far from it. And then other things, you know, what about potential areas of strife or discord? Well, of course, you have Bryson Brooks. That's something you flag. What about players in bad form? Well, Morikawa wasn't playing so great in the FedEx Cup playoffs, didn't really matter because Europe has three or four guys not playing so great. So that didn't seem like a big deal. And then you go back to Bryson and Brooks. It seemed like the way they were handling that was pretty effective. They downplayed it and they had their little uh, peace summit on the range, which was <laughs> a little bit lame. We can admit that. But, hey, at least they made the effort. Okay. So all of this stuff pointed to the U.S. being run pretty competently, as far as I could tell. They were at home. They had the you know the course tailored as much as you can tailor whistling straights to your advantage. Uh, they did. It's a bomber's course. Um, They're young, enthusiastic. They got six rookies, which you might say, oh, that's, you know, hey, the last time Europe had six rookies was at Hazeltine, and they all got wiped out. Except these are a pretty different crop of rookies for the U.S. They're all, other than Sky Scheffler, I think, was 21st, is 21st in the world rankings, and everybody else is better than that. And 21st is pretty good, too. So these guys come out. Um, you know, Morikawa has two majors. Patrick Cantley has FedEx Cup championships. Xander Shoffley has a gold medal. These aren't exactly your run-of-the-mill, you know, wet-behind-the-ears green rookies. These guys are, in all likelihood, ready to go, or at least some of them are going to be. So none of it struck me as a bad thing. So I said, what's going to happen? Well, look, we can just follow the historical patterns here. The U.S. is almost certainly going to come away with a first-session lead. Uh, no, I should say it's going to come away with a lead heading into Sunday singles. And right now we're at 6-2. It would be a miracle if Europe somehow got that back to 8-8 eight to eight or something like that. So we can safely say that uh, the U.S. Uh, is going to have that lead into Sunday singles. And at this point, we can say they're probably likely to win the Ryder Cup. I don't know what the outcome probabilities are if you're into stats, but I would say at this point it's probably above 90%. And I personally think that we're getting close to done here. That's that's my opinion. But I wanted to quickly just say a few words about some of the opening matches here. Um, I was out there today. The atmosphere was good. I thought the Wisconsin fans 
you know, maybe a little sleepy to start, but they got it going. Um, but they certainly were more polite. There were, you know, isolated incidents here and there of people saying things, but certainly better overall than what we saw at Hazeltine by a long shot. Um, and I think, you know, I thought they were good fans. I thought, you know, Europe's going to complain about certain things, but uh, I thought it was a pretty respectful crowd, all things considered. So you had Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth leading off against Ramon Garcia. This ended up being the only match that Europe would win the entire session. Rom was spectacular. Sergio uh, had some iffy shots, but he was big when it mattered. But John Rom really, you know, here's a guy who comes in, number one in the world. If Europe has any chance in hell, he's going to have to play like a stud, and he did uh, in both matches, by the way. He was fantastic. I was really impressed with him. Uh, Justin Thomas couldn't make a putt, and that was interesting because he has been in the President's Cups, the two that he's played, and the Ryder Cup that he played in Paris. He's been America's best player. He really, I think, loves these team match play events. He's really good at them, uh, and he just didn't have it today, uh, which is interesting. Only Him only getting a half point out of two matches. I think if you had told Europe about that before this day began, they'd be doing cartwheels. Um, and it also made me think of a quote that, Justin Thomas said where he said, I'd rather go 0-5 uh, than have you know USA win the Ryder Cup versus me going 5-0 and and us losing. Well, maybe he'll fish his wish this time. He's not going to go 0-5. He did get that half point, but he uh, certainly not off to a great start there. And that team of you know Thomas and Spieth, that's, that's a big hit for them. That was a big match at the start in the sense of you know both, I think both captains predicted who the other pair would be. Neither one of them shied from the conflict, and it was Spain, representing Europe, who came out on top. But then, then you got Paul Casey, Victor Hovland. You know these these pairings; they didn't play together, and you wonder what the rhyme and reason is. Is it supported by statistics? Well, we know stats supports more captains' picks, and and Harrington could have had a ton. He could have had six, like Stricker did. He certainly could have had four when it started. He chose to go with three. I don't think he's the most statistically minded captain in world history so where are these coming from why didn't they play together more in the practice sessions we don't know but johnson and morikawa were very good colin morikawa seemed to have good form earlier in the week he said in a press conference that he's back um he's not hurt anymore and he thinks he's he's got his cut back his little cut shot he's feeling good and that certainly held up and dustin johnson was a stud in both matches today as he often is in these events so they win three and two then you have Kepkin Berger playing Lee Westwood and Matt Fitzpatrick. Apparently, I had heard through the grapevine that the stats supported the idea that Westwood and Fitzpatrick were statistically aligned somehow in a good way. Uh, Harrington mentioned that they were from the same hometown in England, too. So there's some connections there. Uh, well, Kepkin Berger were very good. They beat them. They got up, I think they got two up after three, went back and forth a little bit. Um, then Kepkin Berger won 10 and 11. And from there, it was. Forget about it. And, of course, the big one, the big shock on the day was Cantley and Shoffley, who we knew would be good. They're friends. They went to vacation together in Napa. They've got this connection. But we certainly didn't expect that they would meet Rory and Poulter and go five up after five. That match was beyond done by that point. It dragged out until the 15th, and they won five and three. But no way McElroy and Poulter were ever coming back from that. Very interesting, too, with Rory. He had a pretty miserable day today, got waxed twice. And Rory, when he came into his presser as early as Tuesday, seemed very tired, very exhausted. And um, I was wondering about that. I was wondering maybe it was just travel or something like that. But clearly something's not going particularly right with Rory at this time. 
And, you know, we said Rom had to be a stud for Europe to have a chance, and he, he was. Rory also had to be, and he wasn't, and that's why we're looking at a 6-2 deficit. One of the reasons. One of many. So then we get to the afternoon and four ball. The U.S. goes up 3-1 after foursomes, which is good. There's a, you hear a lot of times that the U.S. isn't good at foursomes, and that has certainly been true in small sample sizes at various times. You know, they got, I think they were dealt two 4-0 blows, um, one, in, uh, one in Paris and one in Glen Eagles. Uh, so it hasn't been great for them. Um, but then they won, uh, in Hazeltine, they won a session 4-0. So they went out with it first, they did it 3-1, that's great. So you get four balls. And this was something really interesting, I thought, which is that Stricker, who I thought was going to keep Spieth and Thomas together, and I thought was going to keep Shoffley and Cantley. In fact, I thought that was a no-brainer. Then I thought we'd see Scheffler DeChambeau and English Finau, which we did in both cases. But instead, at the beginning, he goes with DJ Shoffley, and at the end, he goes with Thomas and Cantley. I don't know. We saw those, and we were all a little puzzled. And we go, why is this going? You know, what's going on here? Same time, they're good teams. Okay, they're good teams, and there's you look at them, and you're like, that's weird that he changed them up. However, they still do have the matchup advantage, and as it turned out, they would end up getting a point and a half from, from those two matches, so you can't really ask for more out of that. But I thought about it, and here's what I think. Here's what I know happened, which is that he had day one scripted from the beginning. Um, this was something set in stone. All the players knew Monday exactly what they were going to be asked to do on the first day, on Friday. After that, he left himself some flexibility, Stricker did, uh, for Saturday. But I think he did the right thing here, which is that if you script it and if you set it out, the last thing you want to do is be throwing curveballs at people. And so you, the last thing you want to do is go, well, Shoffley and Cantley played so well together. Uh, we're going to put that, even though I said we were going to do something different, we're going to put them out. Well, that messes everything else up, and that messes up what people are expecting. And a big part of the Ryder Cup, we said it over and over, is making sure your players know what their role is. Uh, and I think he did the right thing in not changing. And then the next question becomes, well, did he script it the right way? Are these good pairs? And the interesting thing with that is he could have sent Shoffley and Cantley out again. He could have sent Thomas and Spieth out again. But clearly, I think he has a guy in DJ who he wants to play twice. Uh, that turned out to be for a really good reason. Uh, and he wants to play Thomas twice, but doesn't necessarily want to play Spieth twice. So he switches them up. Instead of going, you know, Johnson and Thomas, he goes Thomas Cantley, Johnson Shoffley. Maybe the stats showed him that those were better pairings. Whatever the reason, I actually think this might have been a good idea because if you get to the point where you say, okay, I'm going to have these pairings and foursomes and whoever the two are that play the best, I'm going to put them in the afternoon. Well, then you get into a Tom Watson situation where, you don't exactly know who's going to win all the time when you have to make these pairings. Things happen very quickly when you have to submit the afternoon pairings. Uh, and you get into a situation where you could end up doing something inadvertently stupid like Watson did, where he didn't have Reed and Spieth play again in the afternoon. And you start turning the team against you. You start making them puzzled. So he didn't want this kind of stat. He didn't want to adjust on the fly. He wanted to have his ducks in a row and he wanted to have his team set. And that's what he did. And for whatever reason, we'll probably know after the Ryder Cup, the the way he wanted to set it was by, you know, breaking these teams up, breaking up Shoffley Cantlay, not putting Spieth back out there. Well, proof is in the pudding, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, everybody's going to be judged on their results. I think it was logically sound, and it turned out what happened. Well, DJ and Shoffley were great. They won two and one, 
And Weisberger and Casey didn't, well, Paul Casey wasn't great. Weisberger played pretty well, I thought, and they hung on for a while. This could have been over much sooner. Uh, they dragged it out a little bit. Um, and then in that fourth match, Thomas and Cantley. again, Thomas wasn't playing that well. Cantley made a few mistakes, but it was better. But these guys were, let's see, they were three down after eight, and they fought back to get a tied match. And they could have won. I mean, a putt here or two, a putt or two here or there, and they could have won that match. But to get a tie when you've done that well, what that meant for them as the last match off was that that was another three-to-one session. And it was interesting looking at Thomas and Victor Hovland on that last hole. They both had birdie putts. And so it was a situation where, okay, if Hovland makes it and Thomas miss, then you've got a three-point deficit. Then it's going to be five-and-a-half to two-and-a-half. If Thomas makes and Hovland misses, then you're going to have a five-point deficit. At that point, it'll be six-and-a-half to one-and-a-half. And what ended up happening is they both missed their birdie putts, and so you have a four-point deficit, six to two, but really big for Thomas and Cantley to claw back that half point, and a little bit devastating uh, for Europe, having seen that blue on the board, to have that go away, and you end up not winning a match in the entire second session. Okay, so then we look at English and Finau. I didn't get to see much of this match, but Tony Finau was a one-man wrecking crew. English put them in the lead with a birdie putt on eight, and by the way, three things happened in the span of about a minute. It was English making that putt. It was DJ making a putt of his own. And it was Scotty Scheffler making a birdie putt on 10. It turned one match from Europe leading uh, into a tie. It turned one tie into the U.S. leading. And then it made the DJ Shoffley match, uh, I think, from one up to two up. So this was like an incredible momentum swing. You hear three roars happening on three consecutive holes. I was out there for the Scheffler one, and I heard on either side of me the roars coming and going. So you look at those moments, those momentum moments, and the U.S. certainly had the better of those today. So English and Finau roll, four and three. And then we get to Scheffler and Shambo, who are playing Rom and Tyrrell Hatton. This, I have to say, is another feather in Stricker's cap as far as I'm concerned, because Scheffler would have been, I guess, the guy you would call the most controversial captain's pick. He, um, you know, Webb Simpson was skipped, Patrick Reed was skipped to get him, and you know, the other guys, you know, somebody like Kevin Na, who's really hot or whatever, they were uh, they were left out in favor of Scotty Scheffler because he fit the course better. Well, what I like is that I think it was a good pick, first of all. Look, if you're going to pick people for the course, that's great. No problem at all. It's a plan, like I said, and a, and a good plan. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, what I really like about this, though, is that we know now Scheffler's not playing in the morning. He didn't play on Friday morning. I think Stricker teed him up. I know Stricker teed him up specifically to play with DeChambeau. And the idea was you're going to play the straight man to DeChambeau. You play an incredibly important part in this team. You're going to be hitting the ball in the fairway so DeChambeau can go nuts hitting his long drives. By the way, the drive at five by DeChambeau was spectacular. I think it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a Ryder Cup, and it's what makes Bryson who he is. Like the guy or not, there's something special in him in those moments. But Scheffler is going to be the guy who's going to pair with him He's going to, you know, tolerate Bryson DeChambeau. And you're the guy who's the last pick. You're the 12th pick. This is your job. And you, you know Scheffler embraced it. You know, he's happy to be on the team. He's the perfect guy to ask to do this. You're going to play with him twice. You're going to play in four ball with him twice. You're not going to play alternate shot. Then you're going to go out and you're going to try to win your singles match. Well, it worked really well, I thought. John Rahm was heroic to keep this match as close as it was. Tyrrell Hatton started up with two straight birdies. And he finished with a birdie to tie the match. And so this did not end up in a victory for the U.S. In fact, it was one of the ones 
one of the few results where you could look at it and go, boy, they really probably should have won that. However, they got a half point off of it. And again, when you're in a big lead, getting a half point is better for the team that's in the lead than the team that's chasing because the team that's chasing needs to eat into that deficit and a half a halved match doesn't do it. And I'm saying halves instead of tied. I'm saying all square instead of tied. I don't like tied. I don't know why they did that. So anyway, Scheffler is put into this very unique specialized position, almost like you're a long snapper on a uh, football team or something like that. He only has one job. He did it very, very, very well today. Um, I really think Scheffler was the unsung hero. I think it would have been justice for them to win that match. Just Rom was a little too good. And in a classic four ball situation, you got this guy Hatton who stunk it up basically after hole two for the entire match, couldn't hit a putt. And here he comes and is heroic uh, right when they need him on 18. So, but this all ends and you've got six, two to the U S. So you look at that and go six, two at home. That looks really bad. Well, what happens when we look at Saturday morning foursomes? Does the, do the euros have a chance to come back? And so Stricker does, I think, you know, what is brilliant, but maybe brilliant is too strong a word because it's the right, it's obviously the right play, but it's like, he's got a sort of boa constrictor mentality right now. He's got them gasping for air. So what does he do? Well, he had such a successful first foursome session. Why not throw out the exact same four teams? That's what he does. Switches the order a little bit. So he's got Kepka Berger first, DJ Morikawa going second. Then you have Spieth and Justin Thomas. And finally, you've got Shoffley and Cantley. Now, who are they playing, though? This is where things get pretty interesting, I think. you got Raman Garcia, no-brainer. Yeah, good pair to put back out there. Then you have Paul Casey and Tyrrell Hatton playing DJ and Morikawa. Paul Casey was not good. Hatton, I thought, for the bulk of that match was not good, despite his heroic moment. I don't think these guys are playing very well. I don't know why you have Casey in there instead of somebody like Tommy Fleetwood. Um, but that is what happened. And this, to me, looks like the U.S. should win this match. I mean, this might be another blowout, but I, mean, I think 18 holes is a big enough sample size where the U.S. is playing well enough. I really think it looks good for them. Then we go next. We've got Thomas and Spieth. Okay, they didn't play that one in the beginning, but you've got Hovland and Wiesberger. I guess I can understand that to an extent. I think at a certain point, you've got to mix and match a little bit, uh, but this is two Ryder Cup rookies. Now, Hovland got a half point out of his two matches on Friday. Wiesberger lost his Friday afternoon match, and I'm almost positive didn't play yet. He didn't play in the first one. So he's 0-1. So here you guys have two losses and a, and a tie between these two Ryder Cup rookies, and then you're throwing them out there together. Maybe you have to do this, because maybe, look, if you're Padre Harrington, maybe you don't have eight guys that can uh, that you can count on. So maybe you got to take anyone who's playing decently well and, and put them out there, and maybe you've got to mess up some of the pairs as well. So you've got them going, uh, and they're going against Thomas and Spieth. Again, I think that's an American advantage. Finally, Shoffley and Cantley. This is really, really strong American team that played so well together, and then they got a point and a half in the afternoon sessions. They haven't been beaten yet, and they're playing Lee Westwood and Matt Fitzpatrick. Again, a pair that may have been valued by the stats. Maybe Harrington thinks that they're going to be compatible because they're from the same town or, or whatever. Lee Westwood was not good. He simply was not good uh, in the morning session on Friday. And so why do you put him back out there? Well, who are you sitting? Okay, you're sitting Rory. That's certainly understandable. He didn't play well. You're sitting Tommy Fleetwood. As I said, I think he would be a good person to have out there instead of Paul Casey, instead of Lee Westwood. 
Uh, you're seeing Shane Lowry. Now, there's one where you go, why not get him out there? Why not have him play? And, and finally, you're, you're sitting Poulter. And people will debate, you know, was Poulter bad or was it Rory who was bad Friday morning? I don't know, but he's in Poulter. Maybe give him another shot because it. I would doubt very much that he would play four ball in the afternoon. I could be wrong. I, I keep being wrong about powering Harrington's picks. But you've got him out. You've got Lowry out. Why is Lee Westwood playing again? 48 years old. He looked every bit of it. Walking this course, let me tell you firsthand, is a pain, even if you're just walking nine holes. Someone like that is going to feel it at the end. And if he wasn't playing well in the first place, this seems like a bad idea. And so there again, in that last match, Shoffley Cantley versus Westwood Fitzpatrick, I think you've got a big disadvantage for Europe. I spot that in three matches. And it's not going to be any picnic for Ram and Garcia playing Kepka and Berger. And Rom is going to be tired. He played two matches yesterday. I saw him say he was tired when he was done uh, after the afternoon session on Friday. So, you know, he carried he carried his team against DeChambeau and Scheffler. He's going to be a little bit tired. It's not going to be so easy for that Spanish team to win again against Kepka and Berger, who are fresh and had a victory in the, in the first day and are ready to go. So everywhere you look, the U.S. has an advantage. It's 6-2 to two now. I would be shocked if they don't get at least two and a half points from these pairings tomorrow, which means they would have eight and a half uh, going into the afternoon four ball. I think it's more likely they go three and one again. And then in that case, you're looking at a nine to three outcome. And all of a sudden, two more points in the afternoon gives you 11 points. Nobody's ever come back from 11 points. Once you have 11, you only need three points in singles out of 12 matches or three and a half, I suppose, for the U.S., to get the cup, and that's impossible. That's impossible not to do. Once you have once you have eleven points, uh, arguably maybe even if you have ten and a half points, it's just about over. So this is what the U.S. is looking at: six to two, and they have got an incredibly favorable foursome sessions. I see this as a situation where the foot is on the throat, and I have a good feeling that they may stomp on it tomorrow. They may kind of choke the life out of the Euros. And I don't really understand what Powering Harrington is doing. Okay, well, with that being said, we are we always second-guess a captain when they don't do well, and I think it's fair to do that in Padre Carrington's case. And yet, I don't know. I think he, Look, I think he picked a bad strategy. I don't know if there was a good strategy. And that's kind of the point I wanted to make, is we can second-guess, but if you put a gun to my head and said, well, what should he have done then on Friday morning? Don't necessarily have a good idea. I will say I talked to somebody, and this was off the record, or... Not for attribution, so I'm going to withhold who it was, but I talked to them, considered somebody pretty knowledgeable. <coughs> Pardon me. I talked to them uh, before the matches started on Thursday, and this person said maybe he should do a Mark James. And what that referred to, of course, was 99 in Brookline, where Mark James felt like he had four players he didn't want to play, so he didn't. He took his eight best guys, and he rode them to death. And by the end of Saturday afternoon, he had a 10-6 lead. Well, we all know what happened in Brookline. Not playing those four guys proved very costly. The U.S. had a huge comeback from 10-6 and ended up winning that Ryder Cup. And since then, people have really drastically stayed away from the Mark James model. We saw this year, of course, both Harrington and Stricker played all 12 players um, in the in the first day. Interesting little stat there, by the way. Uh, Jordan Spieth was the only player on the U.S. team who didn't score at least a half point. Anyway, you look at that and you say, yeah, maybe maybe that was the key. Maybe he could have you know, picked his eight best guys, 
played them in every single session, hope for the best and hope for to get a little bit of a lead and then something crazy happens in singles where we should add singles on Sunday. It's not going to be windy. It's going to be sunny. The U.S. was, I think, 11 wins, five losses, and seven halved holes on par fives today. So they have an enormous, enormous length advantage. That's going to come out to play in singles. It's really hard to see the U.S. not winning more than half of the singles matches. So, again, I don't know. I don't know what Harrington could have done. Maybe the Mark James model was his best desperate ploy. I think what he did was tremendously ineffective. I think he should have played people together more in the practice rounds. And I think he's really, really up against it on Saturday morning. And I, in fact, I think smart money says this is going to be it. And I think at noon on Saturday, I think we're going to say this Ryder cup is basically over. I could be wrong, but that's sort of uh, my prediction. And I think the way things are trending, stranger things have happened. Maybe Europe comes back. In any case, that's the uh, that's the thoughts on Friday evening. I'm gonna pause, I'm gonna stop this here for now. Thank you for listening again. This was probably more disorganized, sort of scattershot, and uh, you know, not reading from a script on this. So, sort of um, stream of consciousness in some sense. But hopefully, that was uh, interesting in some way. And I hope you're all enjoying the Ryder Cup. Of course, I am. I think it's fascinating even when there's a blowout. <laughs> A little discouraged, I, you know, I, I think part of me is, you know, when you're writing a book about it, of course, you're like, well, it would be great if it was a close Ryder Cup. And I think as a fan, you just want to see a close Ryder Cup too. You know, every, who doesn't want a 14 and a half to 13 and a half win that comes down to the final match on Sunday? I don't think this is the year for that. But I think it's impressive what Steve Stricker has done so far. I had a really good feeling about him before the week started. I'm glad I was on the record about that. So it's not just like I'm saying it after the fact. But I think it was evident. I think the evidence was evident. And um, so far, so good for Team America. All right, we'll talk to you tomorrow night. Bye-bye.